Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Rob Reiner's new historical drama, Shock and Awe. Based on a true story, the film takes us back to the time after 9-11, when the Bush-Cheney administration claimed that then-president of Iraq, Saddam Hussein, had weapons of mass destruction during their push to ramp up support for the invasion of Iraq. However, journalists at the Knight Ritter News Agency were skeptical of the evidence and stayed in pursuit of the real story while their colleagues mistakenly fed the American people news based on faulty and fabricated intelligence. In addition to shock and awe, Mr. Reiner's directorial credits also include the feature films This is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, Misery, Ghosts of Mississippi, Being Charlie, and LBJ, and the movies for television Sunny Boy, Likely Stories Volume 1, and Everyday Life. He is a three-time nominee for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for Stand By Me, When Harry Met Sally, and A Few Good Men. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Reiner spoke with director Jeremy Kagan about filming Shock and Awe. During their discussion, Mr. Reiner talks about why shooting in Washington, D.C. is so difficult, why he cast himself in the film, and his fervent appreciation for unsweaty acting. Take that one. Okay. How are you guys doing? Good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So the first you. question I have for you is, what yes. do you use for your news sources at this very moment in your life? What do you use? In my life, I have a lot of sources, and I think in order for you to uh, weed through the, the mess out there, uh, you got to pick a number of sources. I, I look at the Wall Street Journal, I look at the New York Times, and I look at Washington Post, and I look at all the networks, even Fox. I look at Fox just to see what the enemy's doing. Um, and it's interesting because there are some good journalists at Fox, uh, Shepard Smith and Brett Baer and um, uh, Wallace, you know, uh, Chris Wallace, but you know, it's it's the opinion people that are uh, that are made it really difficult. So also, I'm just uh, in terms of your your phones and mobiles, are you looking at any other sources? If you're suddenly looking at your so yeah, I mean, I, I'm on Twitter all the time, and I look at you know, there's a number of uh, journalists that I check out, you know, specific journalists that I look at, but you know, I get New York Times and and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, they feed in whatever I see. Yeah, yeah, got it. And have you moved to some of the more, let's say, less known, like TPM or, or not? Well, I, the I, Guardian. I, I look at the Guardian, but I also look at Axios, mm -hmm. and I look at Politico, and I look at the Hill, which is you know from Capitol Hill, and which is pretty down the middle, you know. And uh, you know, Axios is good, actually, pretty right. good. Yeah. Having made this movie and seeing the, the the nature of the Fourth Estate at this very moment today. What's your feelings? Well, it's it's scary right now. I mean, it's it's not just scary uh, from a from a point of view of uh, being able to 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 push the truth out because we're in a very strange time in this country where 
you know, we all know that the press is under attack, you know, it's been called the enemy of the people and fake news and all that, but their physical well-being is now at stake because you see this, what happens at these rallies and uh, these QAnon people and, and uh, Trump, you know, just rousing these people to, to commit, you know, basically violence. And, and we're in this strange time in this country where we're no longer talking about uh, what the best way uh, to deliver health care or education or work on the environment or taxes or jobs or whatever. We're in a major pitched battle for the truth, just arguing about what's true and what's not true. And there's a cl the classic authoritarian fascist playbook is to, and this is something that I started, you know, we launched this site, uh, the Committee to Investigate Russia, and I called upon all of these people who have, you know, tons and tons of experience in the intelligence world, and, you know, talking with John Brennan and James Clapper and uh, Michael Hayden, uh, John Seifer, I mean, uh, Mike Morell, all these guys, they explained to me how, I mean, they didn't tell me every, you know, they're not allowed to tell you classified information, but they did tell me how active measures work because it's very confusing. Um, and this is something the Russians have been doing for a long, long time, uh, even, you know, before the, the Cold War. I mean, even after the, uh, uh, you know, even before uh, the, the Berlin Wall fell. And we've done it, too, in America. I mean, it's, it's a thing called disinformation where you try to get people to think a certain way or you, but what they explained to me is that it's not even so much to get you to um, believe one thing or another. What they try to do is confuse you to the point where you don't know what's true and what's not true. And so it's raising all that confusion that allows an authoritarian to come forward and say, don't worry about it. I'll, you know, I alone can fix it. Essentially, here's a line that's and that's and that's what they explained to me, and and that's what we're dealing with right now because he has been very successful. Trump has been very very successful at um, cementing that 35, 40 percent, whatever it is, to where they will believe anything he tells them. It, it you know, he'll he even has actually said the sentence. Don't believe what you see and hear. Exactly. This is, He's this, actually said that this sentence. This is George Orwell's. Yeah, reading. yeah. This is right here. But here's, yeah. you have a line in here which is, uh, this is what they do. They lie. And this is, she's actually thinking, yeah. talking about government. Yeah. And here's the question that, that, that sort of underlies even this, this movie. What's the lie for? Well... The lie in the case of uh, shock and awe, and by the way, every administration lies. Republicans, Democrats, they all lie. They lie, let's, let's not say to lie, they use propaganda to sell a policy or to sell a rationale for going to war. In this case, they were making the rationale. They had this idea of going into Iraq long before 9-11. It was part of this project for the New American Century, which was written by these neocons uh, for the American Enterprise Institute. The idea was to put a Western-style democracy in, uh, in the Middle East, another one to proliferate and help Israel and so on. So you have to sell that. And, you know, if you remember when Andy Card, who was George W. Bush's chief of staff, went on Meet the Press, he said, 
you don't uh, you don't uh, trot out a new pro a new product in August. And what he was saying was, when people come back from their vacations, you're going to see the main selling tools, and they sold. Uh, Osama bin Laden was responsible for 9-11. They sold that there were weapons of mass destruction that were going to get in the hands of terrorists. They, this idea about aluminum tubes being used to enrich uranium. All that stuff was, was put out there as a way to get to go to Iraq. And that was, the, that was the rationale for it, and that was the propaganda. Now, it's, it's not about a specific policy anymore. Like I say, we're not debating policies, what's you know, good or bad. This is about authoritarianism versus democracy. And the Russians have been trying to undermine the idea of democracy, not just in America, but around the world, and they've been doing it for years. What they figured out, and we bankrupted them, they had to collapse and fold the tent because they spent themselves into oblivion trying to keep up with us in the nuclear arms race, and they collapsed. And the Berlin Wall came down, and, and all of a sudden, this guy, Putin, who was a KGB uh, guy, he takes over the country, and Mother Russia, he doesn't like the fact that they've lost the Soviet Union, and they've lost all these countries. And he figures out, because he's way smarter than, than certainly than, than Donald Trump. Of course, everybody's smarter than him, but that, that's, not an, that's not a tough one. But, but he, he figured out that there's a way of using the internet and, 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 as, as a weapon. And, and that's what he did, and that's what's happened. And if people don't understand, I've been trying to explain this to people for a long, long time, because when we first uh, saw this intrusion into our election, I try to explain to people that this is an act of war. And if we had seen uh, you know, a building get knocked down, everybody knows what that is, or you see bombs dropping in Pearl Harbor, you know what that is. It's an act of war. This is the same thing, but it's much more insidious, and you don't see it, but the capacity for what it can do is way greater than uh, buildings getting knocked down or bombs dropping, because what you can do is, and they're already in there now, they're in there, our, uh, our electrical systems and, and everything, and the question is, what's gonna, who's gonna up the ante here? It's one thing to dabble in people's elections and toy with democracy, but then you can also physically shut down power grids, so and you can you, actually what, what would you, blow stuff up. What people you, don't understand about that. You can actually blow things up, and we did it, America did it with uh, the help of the Israelis, and we blew up centrifuges in Iraq. Uh, I mean, excuse me, in Iran, it was called Stuxnet. What would you be recommending to anyone you're now talking to in terms of the actions, not just being witnesses to yeah. this, but yeah. to being, in fact, active? Yeah. What would you recommend this group of people who just saw your movie? The, the thing that you talk to? The only thing that can be done is right now the press is under attack and it's being eroded. Um, we have no more checks and balances because the Republicans, for whatever reason, have chosen party or their elected offices over country. But we still have, the courts are still holding right now, and we still have the vote. And this is the first time in my lifetime, and I'm, I'm 71, I've been 
through, you know, 17 or 18, whatever it is, presidential You've election. been through a pl pl place where you can look at, actually, George yeah. Bush, and he suddenly sounds reasonable well, compared to well, our time. Well, he was a nice person, at least. I mean, he wasn't, his, pro his, pr his policies were disastrous, and it caused, you know, many, many, many lives and trillions of dollars and all that, so... Uh, you know, right now. But again, going to Trump. What we okay, can I'm, I'm going to get to it because Trump has not uh, done anything yet that is on that level. But if we don't take back the House this time, and this is the first time, because you always hear this, and I've tweeted this out, you always hear that, you know, whenever you get to a presidential election, they say it's the most important election in our lifetime. You hear that all the time. They're all important. But this is the first time a midterm election is probably more important than any presidential election because if the, if the Democrats cannot take back the House, and by the way, you've got really uh, dedicated Republicans working very hard to try to get the House for the Democrats. Uh, they're not in elected office, but you know the Steve Schmitz and the uh, David Frums and the William Crystals and the George Wills and all those people, they're really trying hard because they realize this is not about party anymore. This is about whether or not the democracy survives. So there is a way, and that is to flip the House, which then will put uh, in the hands of Democrats uh, subpoena power that can start holding this president accountable, which we can get, uh, you know, we can get uh, certain information. We can have hearings actually in public and have things come out. Here we in California, and the eyes and are California, the no, 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 gone. California. There are. There are districts, and you can look up and see which districts. There's some down in Orange County. There's some up in Northern California. I, I, you know, you take a look at the uh, the districts that are in play, and if you want to do anything, I would say get people to register, get them to the polls, and because we're going to have to win by a lot. We won, you know, by three million votes last time. wasn't enough because you know we're we're facing you know gerrymandering, which is there. We're also facing. Uh, voter suppression and uh, the help of the Russians for the other side. So we're going to have to come out in droves to the point where it's so overwhelming that they won't be able to say uh, they won't be able to to uh, to, uh, to tamper with it. And you have to understand how how this works. If you can get inside uh, electrical grids and mess with that, you can get inside the electoral system. You don't even have to get into the uh, voter uh, machines because, you know, to flip votes. I mean, everybody thinks they tap into the voter machines. It's too hard to do that because there's too many machines. But every machine is linked to a, to a county where the, the votes are then sent to the county for uh, tabulation. And those things can be hacked into and those things can be dealt with. And also voter rolls can be uh, you show up at the polls and your name's not there, even though you've registered. So those kind of things happen. But if you get there in such droves, it, it will overcome a lot of that stuff. And then you flip the house, and then Mueller uh, comes with his, uh, so you know, you, with his so report, you, and you he's going to come. suggesting then that we all then take an active you role have to. in making sure not only that if, we if vote, you want, but if you want people. democracy to survive, you have to because democracy's 242 years old right now, and the. And we were talking about this That's earlier. Junk. The sweet spot of any great civilization is 250 to 300 years. And there's no guarantee that democracy is going to survive forever. Um, it, it may, it may not. I think it will. I think 
good people of goodwill will do the right thing ultimately. But, um, but it requires you know, it, doing it, it, it right requires thing. doing it, and it also you know democracies are under attack. Brexit was the same kind of thing where the Russians played there. They're playing in Italy. They're playing in. Germany, they've tried to flip a, 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 an election in France. They're trying. They're trying to do all that. So right now, you know, it's like in World War I, they said make the world safe for democracy, you know. We're fighting now, right now. We're in a pitched battle for democracy, but it's happening in cyberspace, and it's happening... Well, clearly you made this movie to to uh, excite us once more into the potential not only of knowing about this and reminding us, but also to hopefully activate us right. in terms of right. doing something. Right. Choices you made. I know you thought about this movie back in 2003. And I know you went through sort of like, well, maybe we should do a kind of a Doctor Strange love version. Yeah, I, I didn't really figure out how to do this. It was it's weird. I mean... I was like, you know, I don't know how many people are my age around it, but, you know, I was of draft age, you know, during the Vietnam War. And I just couldn't believe in my lifetime that uh, we're going to go to war, we were going to go to war twice based on lies. And I said, well, how is this possible, you know? And, and I felt like a, a parent watching their kid run into the street and uh, being feeling helpless to see your child get hit by the truck. And that's what I felt like. And I said, I've got to do a movie of something to talk about wh what's happening here. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll make it like a satire, like you say, like a Doctor Strange love or something. I worked with Larry Gelbart on it, and I couldn't get a script uh, that I liked. And, and then I tried it as a drama, and I couldn't get that to work. And then I saw this documentary by Bill Moyers. You know, who we quote at the beginning of the film, he was LBJ's uh, press secretary, talking about the importance of a free and independent press in order to maintain a, a democracy. And he interviewed these four journalists. And I didn't even know about these guys. I mean, they came, they arrived at the same conclusions I arrived at. If you did your due diligence and you read what you needed to read, you'd know that there was no connection between Al-Qaeda and, 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 and Saddam Hussein. You'd know that, you know, there was no uh, definite, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction, all that stuff. And so I said, well, this is the way in. Here's these guys. But who then you are, also have the boy. Um, yeah. so that, that well, that was another documentary. I saw another documentary of a young guy. This was a true story about a guy who was of, of a military family, and everybody had served in his family. And when 9-11 happened, he signed up. He wanted to go, you know, and they sent him to Afghanistan. And, you know, at a certain point, there, he, all of a sudden he's being shipped to Iraq, and he didn't understand why. He's, because they hadn't caught bin Laden. They hadn't yet really just, you know, totally disrupted Al-Qaeda. And he didn't quite know why he was going to Iraq, but he was literally with, there for less than a week and his transported an IED and he lost the use of his legs. So it's, the idea is to show cause and effect and say, if we don't hold people accountable, and that's the, the line that uh, the character I play, John Walcott says, when the government says something, you only have one question to ask, is it true? And what made you decide to cast yourself? Oh, that's a crazy, that's the craziest story. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Alec Baldwin was supposed to play that part. And we had cast him. And uh, we actually rearranged the whole schedule for him so that he could uh, leave on Fridays to go to New York, you know, so he could do Saturday Night Live to do Trump. And uh, we had been shooting for a week. And uh, we've already been shooting. Yeah, we've been shooting for a whole week with Woody Harrelson and Tommy Lee Jones and 
and uh, Marsden. Marsden, Jim Marsden. And on a Saturday, uh, 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 Alec was going to come on uh, for Monday, and he's supposed to show up on Saturday and then get his costumes and all that. And we get a call on Saturday from his agent saying he's not going to come. He's, he's decided he's dropping out. He's not doing this. I said, well, are you crazy? What am I, you know, now I'm like a maniac. I'm running, I'm trying to figure out who do I. Remind me of Rob Reiner, who once told me when I was asking, and I was, an actor fell out on Friday, and we were shooting on Monday, and I talked to this guy, Rob Reiner, and Rob Reiner said to me, don't worry, when the camera runs on Monday, somebody will be in front of it. That's right. That's what I always said. You're going to roll the camera, somebody will be standing there. You know, who it is. So my wife, Michelle, who's one of the producers on the film, she says to me, well, why don't you do it? And I thought, oh, no, I don't know. I don't like acting and directing. It's that split focus. I said, but I'm available. So I figured, what the hell? And I work cheap. And so I, I decided to do it. And then I'm playing this guy, John Walcott, and she says to me, try to be less Jewish. And I said, all right, I'll try. But that's the reason I'm doing it, just because it was like, you know, necessity. So how did you set up yourself in this sense? Did you, because I, were you already using playback on the shoot? or did Yeah, suddenly... we were using playback, but, you know, I still hate it because, you know, you do a, you do a take and then you got to run and see. And it's just not the good. And plus, I got to look at myself. I don't, wanna, I don't like that, you know, while I'm working and all this stuff. It was not the, not the, the only good thing was that I didn't have time to, you know, I had to take uh, Alec Baldwin's, uh, suits and clothes because we didn't have time to get and I had to you know alter it and change it and his waist was way bigger than mine so that I liked that part that's it he was much fatter than me so I liked that you, you have in, in this there are a number of scenes where your character actually says if anything what is the most important thing to be heard and said yeah and I'm wondering when well, you were doing those scenes. Well, the scene, the scene with that long speech at, in the newsroom when they, they, after they've just watched Meet the Press and and they're starting to doubt their their uh, reporting. Um, there's a speech that uh, John Walcott gets, and apparently that that is. The, by the way, the, all the journalists were there with us. You know, they were on set. They worked with us on the script. They were very active and very involved in everything. And John Landay. Uh, comes up to me and says, you know, John Walcott gave this speech to us and, you know, you should put it in because we had a couple of lines in there. He says, but it's a great speech. He talked about and all the lines that you see in there about, you know, we, we, uh, we don't write for uh, people who send other people's kids to war. We write for people whose kids get sent to war. All that stuff was stuff that John Walcott had and said. not in your script. Not in the script. And we wrote it all down, and I quickly tried to memorize it, and then we just did it. Now, you shot this in a very short time, which is, yeah. and you deserve the applause Yeah, 26, here, which 26 is amazing. days, yeah, we in shot In terms 20. of casting, I want to deal with, besides casting yourself, the, yeah. the boy, how did you find him? Because I assume with the others you made Yeah, offers. you ask, I asked Woody, because I had worked with Woody Harrelson on uh, LBJ, so I you know, had a good situation with him, and we really like working with you, so I asked him. And then I got all the other people, you know, they, if there's a script that is worth something, you know, it's got some, they want to do it. They just want to be part of it. But I auditioned, you know, uh, the, the kids, you know, the young guy and this guy, Luke Tenney, who plays, um, you know, Adam. the young soldier, Adam, uh, he, it was the first audition he'd ever been on. He'd never done anything. And he just came in and auditioned. I said, great. 
It was his first audition. Now he's got a little part in a series. He's doing did, stuff. By yeah. the way, did, in that audition, what did he do in your process? I mean, do you have them read? Do you read with them? Do you do improv? Well, the, I, what do I, you do? I, I read, you know, because he has that long speech at the beginning. Yeah. And people who are, you know, haven't done a lot, they want to hit it out of the park. They, he memorized it. He knew it. And I, the, one of the casting directors, you know, read Jane Jenkins, you know, who I work with a lot, and she read with him. And I usually look for somebody, I don't want to see any acting, if there's no acting there. And then I, that's to me, you know, what I call unsweaty acting, you know, it's just, it's, it's just there. Like Richard Jenkins to me is like a great unsweaty actor. Morgan Freeman's another unsweaty one, where it's just, it's just he's just talking and it's just there, you know. There's no acting and stuff. And he was like that. And, and did you know it right then and there? Yeah. And did you yeah. say? And did you say to him? I didn't say to him right then and there because, you know, and I and this is something that Jane Jenkins always tells me because it, there's other people coming in, you know, and, and so they you don't want to say because then there's other people. And so I never I, I usually say okay you got but then she said wait wait there's others you know. The only time I did that was with Kathy Bates, you know, when I did Misery. Uh, she, she, I, I had seen her on stage like three or four times, and she's a great actress. And uh, Bill Goldman, though, who wrote the screenplay, he, he said, what about Kathy Bates, you know, to play Annie Wilkes? And I said, well, he, I, she's great. I mean, um, but, you know, she had never done film, you know, really that much. She's done little things. So I had her come in. And we sat down and we started to read. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. She read like one line. And I said, uh, you don't have to read. I know you can do it. You know, you, you, you can do it. You can do it. And she said, what do you mean? I said, no, you, you can do it. You'll, you'll have the part. And she said, really? And I said, yeah. She said, can I tell my mother? <laughs> I said, yeah, you can tell your mother. In that scene with Adam in his first scene, because yeah. you're opening your movie with someone in this yeah. sense who's yeah. never been there on screen before. Right, right. Do you remember when you were shooting that? Was it a challenge for him and you, or was it? It wasn't a challenge for him because, like I say, when he came in and auditioned, he did it. But he didn't freeze within the, you know what I'm saying? No, he never freeze. I mean, what I try to do with the set, I mean, I'm an actor, you know, and so I, you want people to just feel comfortable. And I will say, and now it's even better now when you have... You know, things done digitally, you know, and there's no film. You're not wasting any film. It's like, you know, you just keep running the thing. And I say, you know, and they would always say, well, should we rehearse? I said, what are, you, what are we rehearsing for? What's the point of rehearsing? You know, we'll just shoot. And, you know, if it's good, it's good. If it's not, we'll keep going and whatever. And did you, is this was the style here too? Yeah, I always did that. I mean, the, the nice thing is you can walk in like you finish a take and then you don't stop the thing, you know? You just walk in and say, all right, and you're talking to them while you, and then you just do another one. And so they're feeling relaxed. It's not like, okay, get ready, now it's time, action, you know? They're, they're already comfortable, it's a nice playground, and everybody's, and I want people to feel good because that's what I know I would, you know? And I never ask an actor to do something I couldn't do, you know? It's like if you're a coach of a team, you know? You don't want to say, okay, Run down the court, stop at half court, and hit a hit the hit a jump shot. You know, I nobody can do it. You know, but if you know you, I know I can do it. Then I'll ask. I'll, I know they can do it. You had, um, uh, uh, in terms of the way you shot, a number of scenes where you've got the two guys interviewing something. So you've got these three shots that are yeah. that that come 
a lot in terms of your storytelling. Yeah. You also have chosen to uh, oftentimes move that camera. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you've got multiple cameras or one. But yeah, I, I always had that, two and cameras. And what was the what was the either decision or process? So, you know, it, just the two of us, but or three of us in those yeah. cases, the cameras moving a minute. Well, how did you? Okay, so it? so here's what's funny. First of all, I had two cameras all the time because you can't shoot something in 26 days unless you have more than one camera. Although it takes too long. And the guy who sh uh, shot it, Barry uh, Markowitz, who shot the last three films I did, he also did uh, this, the film with uh, Jeff Bridges that uh, where he played the uh, uh, the country star. Uh, Crazy Heart. He shot Crazy Heart. He also shot Sling Blade. And he's a really good DP. But he also operates the second camera. And he has uh, major ADD. And he can't sit still. I mean, he's, he's Jewish, and so he's got spilkus, you know. And I'm always going back and forth. Barry, Barry, the camera. And he says, yeah, but he gets bored, you know. So he just keeps moving it. So I, and the other guy is a little bit more, uh, you know, reserved and stuff. So you get a mixture of things. But he always has, he has a good instinct, you know. He has a good instinct. He doesn't usually, you know. But sometimes I say, Barry, just keep the camera there because I need to see that there, you know. No. Otherwise, you'd always look there, but I'm bored. Moving. I'm bored. I want to go. <laughs> so you went with yeah. locations. Yeah. Um, I thought that you had the presidents, you know, you know um, all the presidents, man, you built this fabulous room for the. And yeah, no, we got lucky because we shot down in New Orleans and the Times Picayune, which is the big paper that they had moved to another building and they just and they left this place empty. It was completely empty. So we got to just dress it and make it look like, uh, you know, like the, the Knight Ritter offices. But we we could never have built that. It's too expensive, you know. You don't have that, the budget. And in, in recreating Afghanistan and Iraq? Yeah. You know, it's it's like I did this movie uh, Bucket List years ago, and, uh, you know, the, the Jack Nicholson and, and Morgan Freeman, they go to the pyramids, and they go to, you know, they jump out of a plane. They go, they go everywhere, you know. They're in Africa. They're... They, they we, they were on top of a mountain with the, with the with the with the snow. We never left the parking lot in the, you know that place, the lot that's across the street from like the Formosa Cafe. You know, we shot it all in this that's parking lot. You can with CGI, you put everything in and you just build a little thing where they are and everything around it. You know, so we did that. You know, we we had Afghanistan. It was a it was a parking lot at in New Orleans. So in order to set those shots up, did you have someone storyboard this for you so you can know? Okay, here are the shots we're going to need for these. This yeah, a lot of times they like the storyboard. They, you know, they said they they will storyboard. I never use the storyboards though because I'll look at them, but then I will just say, wait a minute. I know generally what they can cover, and I, what I'll do is rather than storyboard, I'll work with the uh, CGI guy, and I'll say. Just tell me where I can shoot. Give me the angle. Just show me the areas that I can shoot and what you can do and put in. For instance, like when the, 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 the uh, transport, uh, you know, a caravan is moving, you know, that was shot, you know, in a place where there was a junkyard and there was like a lot of stuff we just painted out and you make it look like a desert. And he tells me, well, you can shoot 360. I just, it's going to cost this much. As long as I know I can shoot 360, then I can put the camera anywhere. And we use drones, you know, we had some drone shots for that. What was, and this is our last question, because unfortunately yeah. we have to leave, but That's okay. um, what was the toughest scene for you as you reflect on this movie now? The toughest, let's see. Mm. 
I, I don't know. I mean, they, they, they all seem to work okay. I mean, the, the hardest is shooting in D.C. because it's crowded now, and there's more security than there's ever been. You know, After 9-11, there's been so much more security. It's hard to get streets, you know, and, and, and get them cleared. But also, you're working with uh, the uh, Capitol Police, the federal government, and there are certain places you can go and everything. And that was, that was difficult. You were allowed a certain amount of time. I remember when I did uh, LBJ, we had to go to Dealey Plaza, and it took, you know, they said, okay, you can have like six hours. And I had to recreate the whole Kennedy assassination, six hours. So that one, I really did plan every single shot. I had four cameras and I moved around. But anything in D.C. is, is hard. It's hard. One more question. Yeah. Speaking of D.C., yeah. uh, what's Dick Cheney's response to the film? So I don't far? know, man. I don't know. But, I mean, he, he still stands by it and said it was still the right thing to do, you know? But here's something interesting. We, showed a, we had a screening there in uh, D.C., and, and uh, General Shinseki, who was at the time, if you remember, he testified and, and said if you're going to, invade Iraq, you're going to need at least three to 400,000 troops to hold this place for a period of time. He turned out it was right, but he got fired for saying that because Wolfowitz was saying, uh, it should, you know, we'll be in and out $2 billion and the, uh, the, the reconstruction will pay for itself and all this ridiculous stuff. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, I start crying watching this thing. And the other guy was Lawrence Wilkerson, who was uh, Colin Powell's chief of staff. And he watched this and he came up after me and he said it got me angry all over again because he knows that his boss was uh, handed a bill, of, a bill of goods. Well, thanks for getting yeah. us angry once yeah. more and hopefully we'll act vote, on it. Vote, vote, vote. You got to vote. Got to get everybody out. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 